This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. What could be better than Rock the Park? Think about this. Rock the Park is something everybody in this area looks forward to each and every year. What could make that even better? How about these words? The road to Rock the Park. Huh? This was announced earlier today. The road to Rock the Park. About four hours ago, you can follow on Twitter, Rock the Park, LDN, and just announced Road to Rock the Park. Powered by Start.ca will be happening at Delaware Speedway September 23rd. Let's find out more about this because this sounds like this sounds like a concert. It says Dean Brody, James Barker Band, Jade Eagleson, special guests. Here is Brad Jones from Jones Entertainment Group. Brad, how are things? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And is it? I'm starting to sound excited. I know. I'm feeling a little <laughs> bit excited. Is is that okay to feel that way? Could we actually see something as perhaps normal as a, a way to have a safe concert? Yeah, it's uh, we're very excited to be uh, you know have a positive story after the last eighteen months. So the the answer to your question is yes. Be excited. I can tell you the reaction from announcing it this morning um, has been phenomenal. Uh, you know our our hope and plan is to do sort of it's three to four thousand. We've capped it at four thousand, and and we think with the lineup we're going to do three to four thousand. With uh, you know, listen, it's the first outdoor you know large event in literally almost two years because you know you know we stopped in you know July of twenty nineteen was the last uh, outdoor festival you know it's just crazy so be excited and uh and tickets go on sale friday morning and yeah dean brody james barker band great young act jade eagleson and, and another act will be announced shortly um we're, you know we've set this up uh, mike to be sort of a family atmosphere uh, the new management at Delaware Speedway have put a ton of money into this place in the last six months. It's We were asked probably two or three times over the last dozen years to come out and look at it as a venue, and it just never changed. It was just that old Delaware Speedway that your parents would take you to 20, 30 years ago, and they hadn't put any real money into it. And these new guys have pumped a ton of money into it, put a nice facelift on it, cleaned up the track, uh, and, and instantly, as soon as we saw it, we, we, my brother and I said, absolutely, we're going to do it. So, um, you know, we're excited to, to be out there on Thursday, September 23rd, Canadian country lineup. Uh, the CCMA awards are coming to London in November. So, again, what a way to, to uh, showcase some Canadian talent. Uh, back to the ticketing, the whole big, beautiful, grassy Knoll Hill, sort of a natural amphitheater is going to be set up for families. Tickets are $39 for kids 15 and under. And then when you get down on the track and the standing and dancing and, again, working with the health unit and if masks are mandatory, our security and the OPP will make sure everybody keeps their masks on. There's a VIP area very similar to Rock the Park with reserved tables uh, and seating. And when you're sitting at the table drinking and eating, you won't have to wear your mask, much like a restaurant patio. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Be excited, Mike, because I know we are. Brad Jones joining us from Jones Entertainment Group as we talk about the road to Rock the Park, September 23rd, happening at Delaware Speedway. So the rules are still to be announced kind of thing. We, we I guess we just have to wait until we know what September looks like. 
You know, exactly. We've got a couple of months here to work closely with the health unit in the township. Um, you know, but I can tell you the township was world class when the management team reached out to them and said, listen, we want to work with Jones Entertainment and do this event. And, you know, technically they, they have a capacity, Mike, that we could do 15,000 people out there. We want to keep it to under 4,000. We can socially distance if that's what we need to do. And the township absolutely signed off on it instantly. And it was just nice to have that support from, from the township. When we look within London, because we're all wondering about that, Harris Park has been home to Rock the Park, and we know that there's a discussion going on at City Hall this week, Brad, and they're going to be talking about how late to have outdoor events at Harris Park. And the idea that weekdays there might be a, an early curfew or earlier curfew of 9 p.m., how closely are you watching this? Yeah, we're, I, I think it's uh, right now it's it's uh, they're looking for a mandate of this September, uh, which in my mind is is a disgrace, to be honest with you, Mike. It doesn't really affect our planning for next year. We'll still be – our intentions right now are still to be four nights in Harris Park in 2022 in July. Um, but, but you know what, this, you know, timing, it looks like, it, hey, Jones has just said, no, forget it, we're going to go to Delaware. It's the Delaware Speedway people. We've been working on this for two months. So it's not that uh, directly to that. But if you're asking my opinion on, on where the city staff come up with the ideas, I, I say I don't know where they would come up with this idea. You know, the, the tourism uh, world has been, you know, crushed for the last 18 months and restaurants have been crushed. And, and if it's Alfredo with Sunfest and he wants to do a nice event on a Thursday and Friday in September, he's not going to be able to shut it down at 9 o'clock. And that's when the party gets started. And so just to come up with this cockamamie idea, I don't get it. I hope the council are smart enough to go, do we really want to set a precedent to say, one, like, you know, Ed Holder had the greatest line, do we really want to be the city that fun forgot? You know, here we are, you've got all this talk, you've got somebody on city staff that makes a lot of money to be the, the head of music or whatever, and, and they're trying to make London the, the music city of Canada, but yet the other department is saying, no, we're going to shut you down at 9 o'clock, it doesn't make any sense, it's ridiculous, that's my opinion. Brad Jones from Jones Entertainment Group. Brad, before we let you go, you've been able to talk with artists and performers what do you hear from them when you're actually able to put down a date? How are they feeling? I, you know, management agents, the artists themselves, uh, you know, we've talked to American side too. We're doing this in September. We don't know all the border restrictions, so we're going to keep it with Canadian talent in September. But everybody across the board, on both sides of the border, are just so excited to get out. Uh, Mike, we've spent the, in the last month down in Bellomere at the winery. Uh, with Tim Hicks, the Rec Laws. We just had four sold-out nights with the Trues with 120 people each night. The, the thank yous that we get as people are walking in and walking out of the winery, thank you for putting these on. Um, it's just awesome. And the artists are thrilled to be playing again and, and making a living and feeding their families. And, and uh, you know, if it spins off to other restaurants and bars and hotels, that's what tourism's all about. And, uh, you know, it's so, so it, they're just, yeah, they're thrilled to be working again. So tickets for Road to Rock the Park, when and where? Give us that one more yeah. time. Go, go on sale, rocktheparkca on Friday morning at 10 o'clock. If you're in our Rock the Park database, meaning you've supported us in the first 17 years, you'll be uh, given a, an e-blast that will go out with a p- passcode that will give you a pre-sale uh, information for Thursday. But, uh, yeah, Friday morning, 10 o'clock, rocktheparkca and uh, it's, it feels great to be back and have some positive news for the people that love concerts and, and want to go out and be entertained.
Brad, can't wait to talk more about this because, yeah, it's it's exciting, and we're allowed to be excited, and that's new too. Exactly. Thanks for the time. Have a great hey, rest of the day. Mike, thanks. Always appreciate the time. Bye-bye now. That's Brad Jones from Jones Entertainment Group. And that discussion is going on this week. So how much of a discussion is this? Is this just something that someone's decided to put forward? And let, and the discussion we're talking about is whether or not to have a weekday curfew for outdoor events at Harris Park of 9 o'clock. And as Brad pointed out, hey, that's when things do get going. You know, when you've got, say, a concert, your headliner's not coming on much before 9 o'clock. And sure, the 11 o'clock curfew is there. 9 o'clock. <music> 30th Governor General in Canadian history, Mary Simon. And Mary is someone who grew up in an Inuk and Indigenous community. And as has been said already, she understands kind of two worlds of this country that most of us can't even begin to appreciate. And that's going to be great. I really feel good about what Mary Simon has an opportunity to do, given the time now that she is taking over this position, because this position was not vacated in a great way. This position was not left, and you think, okay, well then, yeah, let's let's please, let's get another governor general in there, and let's make sure that this position continues to do the things that it's been doing. This is a position that now has someone in it who instantly redeems it, and now has work in front of her that she can lend expertise to. And I think that is absolutely phenomenal and key to what we have here happening in our country. But that's just me. And again, I'm the same guy who didn't know the difference between a 50-50 and a board slide. So let's talk with someone who can add true perspective to this. We are very lucky to have with us Sarah Mae Chitty, who is a storyteller, an educator, a member of Alderville First Nation, and a curriculum and pedagogy advisor with Western's University or Western University's Indigenous Initiatives. Sarah Mae, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I feel encouraged. I feel this is a position that now all of a sudden, in in a way, has many purposes but all of a sudden has a very new, important purpose. Please tell us how you view today and the governor general position that is now officially held by Mary Simon. Well, I think any day where a Anuk woman um, of such amazing accomplishments and um, negotiating and like connecting, like Mary Simon is an amazing person and has demonstrated exceptional leadership throughout her career. So I think any day where she becomes in a in a position of leadership, such as a governor general, is a good day. Um, I was conflicted before she was even appointed. There were calls for an Indigenous governor general, and I just wasn't sure where that fit in because that's, you know, a representative of the Queen. And so I was like, how how does this fit in? Like, you know, does this make sense? Um, but uh, in kind of seeing what other folks have said about it and some really important um, 
points about calls to action, specifically with the Royal Proclamation um, and Covenant of Reconciliation. That was one of the things mentioned um, by Robert uh, Jago, who's a... um, uh, a, a journalist, oh, he's from BC First Nation, it's escaping me, um, but he pointed out that that could be one of the most important things Mary Simon does. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity in this position uh, to do a lot of really good work. So I'm excited. Good. <laughs> Long answer. Long answer no, short. <laughs> but a great answer. That's, that is encouraging to hear. Now, in terms of who we have as our Governor General, it's always good to get to know our governor general mary simon when you talk about what she has done and some of you know what she has fought for what comes to mind um i think that she's always placed um her people and her responsibility to her people first she's been involved with like the charlottetown accord she was a lead negotiator for the arctic council with like internet that's an international council with other indigenous peoples um, she's been involved with land claims negotiation. Like she's a like you know she's beloved. Like as soon as that appointment was announced, so many Inuit were you know on Twitter um, talking about how proud and excited they were to have an Anuk person in the in this position of power. So um, you know I, I think that we are in good hands. And I I you know I mentioned my criticism, and I just think that someone like Mary Simon. She had to have carefully deliberated and carefully thought about and considered what this could mean for reconciliation in Canada, what this could mean for Inuit, what this could mean for Indigenous peoples across Canada. And so, you know, I have a lot of confidence in her leadership personally. So would that maybe come into effect or come into, you know, an opportunity in that there may be those who say, well, you know, the only reason that we are seeing someone like Mary Simon, who grew up in, in an Inuk in an indigenous community, the only reason that she's being appointed is because of what we're seeing with the indigenous schools and the findings and it, is that where you see Mary Simon being able to say, hey, don't worry, you know, that's that's not the only reason why this is happening? I, yeah, I see people's criticism of that, of, oh, like, you know, this is just another, you know, this looks good on Trudeau and, you know, that this, like, just that it's kind of a, a virtue signaling kind of thing. You hear that all the time, but I think that doesn't do... Mary Simon, like, that's not giving credit to Mary Simon and, and, you know, what she, like, like I said, I can't see her taking this role without having really thought about those nuances and the complexities. And, um, truly, like, I do want to just bring back, uh, what I said about Robert Jago's point, um, because he talked, so Article 45 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action reads, we call upon the government of Canada on behalf of all Canadians to jointly develop with Aboriginal peoples a royal proclamation of reconciliation to be issued by the Crown. The proclamation would build on the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and the Treaty of Niagara of 1764 and reaffirm the nation-to-nation relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the Crown. And it goes on to say it would include, but not limited to, things like repudiating concepts used to justify European sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, such as the doctrine of discovery in Terra Nullius. And I think what Canada needs to recognize is that reconciliation, while it has been framed in the context of residential schools, and that is a horrific tragedy and needs to be, like these calls to action need to be addressed, 
truly at the heart of this is these agreements like that that I just said, Royal Proclamation, the Treaty of Niagara, and if folks listening don't know what those are, those are integral to how Canada is able to exist today. And so if we're not maintaining and we're not renewing these these relationships and we're we're not creating and building new relationships in light of how how much trauma and and suffering has been, you know, put upon indigenous peoples for simply existing. Um, if we're not do, gonna do this work then, you know, <laughs> then we're, we're really not going to get anywhere. And so that's not to say that residential schools don't matter, but I'm just saying that the more Canadians focus on residential schools as the heart of reconciliation, then we lose sight of how many other it, like issues created by colonialism that uh, Indigenous peoples face in Canada. And it goes directly to those treaties and it goes directly to those agreements. And so Mary Simon being in this role... Um, I really hope to see some work being done along those calls to action because I think that she is probably one of the only people that could bring that forward in this in this particular case. We're talking right now with Sarah May Chitty, who is an Anishinaabekwe storyteller, educator, a member of Alderville First Nation, and a curriculum and pedagogy advisor with Western University's Indigenous Initiatives. And we're looking at the fact that Mary Simon has now become Canada's 30th Governor General, and that was made official this morning. But, Sarah May, it's great to hear you talk about the other treaties and, you know, the fact that Mary Simon was involved in the Charlottetown Accord and the, you know, the knowledge, the experience that she has. Is that something you expect to see her maybe address very quickly, given that it did come up even at the inauguration? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I think that it'll be really interesting to see what she does next, um, because I think it would be really cool to see her sort of, um, you know, push back a little bit in this role, because it is quite a significant role in, you know, the entire way Canada is governed. And we need we need people to to do <laughs> to to do this work in a radical way. And, um, you know, I really strongly encourage anyone uh, to look into those things <laughs> like such as the Treaty of Niagara, um, just to understand a bit more about indigenous canadian relations and history because you know we all live here now and how we go forward together is instrumental for the health and well-being of indigenous peoples across canada so definitely think that whatever is next for her i i just i'm excited to see i really hope that it isn't just a figurehead position and that it's just sort of like you know, oh, okay, you know, an Indigenous person in a, in a position of power, but their hands are tied. Like, I really hope that Mary Simon is able to, be like, do something generative in this position. Is that a test you think that we're going to see play out early, that we have to first determine whether or not Mary Simon has the opportunity to do some of these things, to enact an exact change? I think she's a very seasoned negotiator. So I, yeah, I'm very interested to see how, yeah, what moves she makes. And uh, I just know that um, from a cultural standpoint, and I can't speak to Inuit culture, but I imagine it's rather similar, um, just having 
uh, you know, women in leadership, especially Indigenous women in leadership, it's just so, so crucial. It's a different perspective and a different understanding. She speaks enough to touch and, you know, and, and language comes from the land, but she's very much connected to her community and brings such a different perspective that I think no governor general was able to bring up until this point. And so I think people should rest assured that we're in good hands, that's for sure. Sarah Machidi joining us, an Anishinaabekwe storyteller, educator, member of the Alderville First Nation, and also, Sarah May, you deal with curriculum and the fact that we can go through, whether it's kindergarten through grade 12, sometimes you could throw in college or university courses, and we're not going to spend a lot of time going back to 1764 and the Treaty of Niagara. We are not going to learn a lot about something more recent, the Charlottetown Accord. It's not there to be found necessarily in our history. How much of that do you expect may be able to change now that we are talking about it? Well, I think people are starting to understand that we all have a responsibility to do this work and that, you know, um, there's like, you know, I can't make somebody on the street take a course and I can't make them go Google something. But I think that, um, you know, as a citizen of Canada, that anyone should understand exactly how and why Canada is the way it is today and how that came to be. And historically, Indigenous people's role in that has been erased. And so I think it's super important, but but there's, there's so many different levels. It goes to like school boards that have to implement this provincial level because of Ontario curriculum dictates what can and cannot be in the curriculum, right? And then when we get to post-secondary, there are resources such as my myself but you know for for one university and so and everyone wants it like i'm seeing an, an incredible uptake like people want to do this work um but there's so much unlearning that needs to be done and so i also think that um media plays a huge role in this like i really like i thank you for having me on the show and being able to share my perspective but i also think that um, that educational role can be taken on by by news agencies and and news organizations because what I'm seeing is, you know, on social media is a lot of ignorance and I'm seeing these conversations happening in comments and I'm, I, and I question, you know, for us to have a society where we're all working together and, you know, democracy, like news is like the, like the, the tenant of democracy. Are we informing um, readers? Are we informing Canadians? to the point where they can have informed conversations and discussions that are incredibly complex and nuanced, such as a role, like having a nook person in the representing the crown as governor general, that's an incredibly complex situation. And uh, folks are really narrowing in on some, some interesting things. And, And so, you know, it's this responsibility, this collective responsibility to learn together, to unlearn together, but also to make sure that people have, the information that they're missing so that they can have really generative discussions about uh, about these issues because they're not going away. <laughs> no, and that's the important part of this, nor should they. And this is something that as many Canadians go through their entire education, they they don't 
either get the opportunity or take the opportunity because education is not as you say what's given to you it's not hey go google this or stop someone on the street to say do you know this no it's it's on all of us to go out and say okay i don't know about this i don't know what treaties are impacting the way canada works right now so how do i change that it does become on us doesn't it it really does and there's lots of this is the cool thing is like there's tons of indigenous people that have been working for years on, you know, um, delivering this information. So there's lots of resources online. Um, the University of Alberta did this massive open online course that's like free to everyone. But again, you know, not everyone has the time to take a 12 week course. So then I guess I just also, um, you know, would recommend to people is take the learning opportunities as they come and do some deep listening. You know, um, it's easy to listen, to respond. It's easy to to sort of sit in that place of, of like this, like for a lot of people finding out these things, it's like you've been lied to. You're, like I've heard it numerous times, like sitting with different faculty members and, and different people who have attended workshops and sessions like um, and youth, it feels like I've been lied to my whole life. Like, I don't actually know the history of this country. I don't actually know, you know, what everything is founded upon. And so, and those can bring up a lot of, like, emotions and, and a lot of hostility or, or defensiveness. And it's, it's just, like, we have to move past this sort of, like, things are fine the way they are. And if you don't like it, kind of, you know, move mentality, like, what... The, like indigenous rights are crucial to Canadians' rights. Like every time indigenous rights are undermined, our Canadian constitution is undermined. And so these things need to be addressed because it, it matters. And as like with climate change and all these imminent, you know, indigenous peoples ha- hold very unique rights in Canada in which we can protect land and waterways. And, you know, the the biggest, the reason why, <laughs> why, indigenous like nations aren't successful in court is because those court systems are set up upon those things that i mentioned this idea that terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery that you know the crown gave through god gave canada this right to occupy this land and so we have to really seriously look at these things and what does it mean to be Canadian today but also like what does it mean to create a sustainable and equitable society like together all together you know so big great things, question big things big things <laughs> big things for sure and yeah. hey sarah may thank you so much for lending your expertise for us today and uh we'll look forward to seeing what happens hopefully we are able to see a governor general that is allowed to say this is what needs to be done this is what needs to be done and those actions can be taken i'm looking forward to it thanks for having me mike <laughs> All the best. Keep safe. Have a good one. That is Sarah May Chitty, an Anishinaabekwe storyteller, educator, and member of Alderville First Nation. Also deals with curriculum and pedagogy with Western University's Indigenous Initiatives. And that's an important thing. This is someone, this is, this is maybe the reason why you can look at the governor general position and say, come on. No, like, if, what exactly is happening here? You've got someone who's a figurehead. If they're abusing power, if they're abusing budgets, that doesn't need to happen. Now, we have someone who has the ability, who has had to fight for so much in her own life and has chosen to fight. Now, we have someone who you can say, all right, you know, if we're going to make this position into something that is good that is better 
Here's a person who has the opportunity to help us do that. Mary Simon, 30th Governor General in Canadian history. A few years ago, well, actually, maybe it goes back about it. It feels like a few years ago. It's about a year and a half ago, almost two years. Pfeiffer, Morgan, and Stesiak tackled the old, old saying that most car accidents happen within five miles of home. So they started doing some math on this. And they found that an estimated 52% of car crashes actually occur within five miles of a person's home. And 77% occur within 15 miles or less. Now you could argue and say, well, that's because we're driving within that vicinity far more often. But in other words, when something is close to home, sometimes it's it's harder to see it, it's harder to realize it, you kind of lose your focus, and that may help to explain why there is a push to go after domestic terrorism. The United States federal government is choosing to do this, and this hasn't been a secret, but they are putting together a, a plan or have put together a plan to go after domestic terrorism and it's something we haven't really had a chance to talk about but we're going to make some time right now dr thomas cook joins us social sciences and humanities research council of canada postdoctoral fellow at the surveillance studies center at queen's university dr cook how is monday going for you not a bad monday so far mr mike how about yours you know what? The sun is shining, and uh, and I'm sitting here. So I'll take it. That's that's as far as I'm going to let this go. But when we look at the U.S. federal government, the Biden administration, what do we need to know about their plans for a fight against domestic terrorism? Americans' exposure to terrorist recruitment material is online. It's dangerous, and it's going to be targeted. That's the gist of it, Mike. And that makes it sound nice and easy, simple, okay, we just uh, do that, uh, wipe our hands of it, and yeah. off we go. This should be a one-hour meeting in the afternoon, and then pop, pop, we're all done. But probably not. No, absolutely not. So what he's referring to more specifically, and I think this should be quite obvious to, to most of you listening in your car or at the office at home right now, what happened on January 6th was unprecedented and obviously very dangerous. And the organization behind that incident took place on social media platforms. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, QAnon and Stop the Steal movement, uh, having these sort of Facebook groups, and then Zuckerberg's uh, subsequent failure to adequately and appropriately respond to the manifestation of very, very violent sentiments and outright uh, deliberate plans to launch an attack on the United States. But there were also other social media platforms that were more specifically designed, Mike, as we've discussed in previous shows uh, together before, um, specifically to organize extremist right-wing offensive leading to the January 6th uh, incident in the United States. And so what Biden is essentially trying to do here, Mike, is put together a program He's calling it the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. And the, the premise of it, as I mentioned before, is to make sure that terrorist recruitment material that was used in these social media platforms will no longer be found there. 
that it will be rooted out and addressed and the people responsible for it will be penalized and potentially be labeled as terrorists. So the uh, potential for this to be a significant shift towards a new bill, I think, is quite high. And this is obviously a radical departure uh, in terms of the war on terror discourse that we've been observing for nearly two decades now, Mike. And in in doing this, you're essentially having an administration talk to a private company or private companies and ask them to do things. That would happen from time to time. But how do you see this particular ask of a private company to do things that, in the end, are designed to try and protect everyone? This is a great question. This is a really, really important question because I, I think the surveillance discourse and the privacy discourse that we talk about so often every week on the show, Mike, is premised upon uh, the recognition that information sharing, or perhaps more particularly, information collecting through you know, piggybacking corporate communications or internet comms or signals intelligence or what have you, is usually the premise of, of global widespread surveillance, right? But what we're talking about here is a partnership. What the Biden administration is ultimately striving to do, Mike, is establish a kind of agreement or a connection that says when we have information about certain terrorist groups like QAnon, like Stop the Steal, we are going to share that information with you. In confidence, of course, it's a national security matter, and you, social media platform, are going to reciprocate. This plan is structured off of what the Biden administration has identified as four pillars, Mike. One of them, uh, the first pillar, is understand and share domestic terrorism-related information, as I had just mentioned. Pillar two is to prevent domestic terrorism recruitment and mobilization to violence, so that is going to necessitate uh, some sort of interventionist action on the behalf, uh, or at least directly by the social media platforms themselves. Pillar three is to dis- disrupt and deter domestic terror activity. This is why I, I very much believe that a bill will be necessary to uh, develop a very efficient apparatus for imposing uh, some sort of legally binding arrest or or some sort of terrorism-related charge or something of, of the such. And then pillar four is to confront all of these things on a long, long-term basic, uh, basis. Excuse me. Confront long-term contributors to domestic terrorism. So I would imagine through this fourth pillar, Mike, that the Biden administration is not presupposing that there are only two problematic groups in the U.S., but they're, they're gro- growing quite quickly, and they're manifesting into new digital spaces as well as offline spaces that, frankly, the Biden administration is just going to need to be uh, very aware of for the next few years. We are talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University, and we're talking about the U.S. government and a four-pillared plan, as Dr. Cook has outlined, to address domestic terrorism and a partnership between social media companies, for instance, or digital companies that would share information and hope to root this out. Now, you mentioned it, different platforms um other groups popping up it's back to kind of fighting that enemy you can't always see can't always find how hard is it going is it going to be to identify these groups if if they're making it hard to find i think people who would tell you that it's going to be challenging are probably not being honest 
And the reason why I say that is because the evidence of the sentiments and the plans and the commitments to violence, Mike, the commitment to causing harm, to ending life, to mounting an insurrection, is clear as day. It's in bigotry. It's in racism. It's in sexism. It's all there. It's plain language. This is not about code. This isn't about deciphering some sort of zodiac symbology. This is about social media platforms paying attention to hatred and reporting it. Now, some people listening right now, I know, are going to say matter-of-factly, Dr. Cook, there is going to be some sort of censoring that goes on here, that there is going to be an extension of surveillance. I think what we need to be thinking about is the extent to which the previous discourse on censorship from the previous four years preceding the Biden administration was politically leveraged by the extreme right wing to mount a defense for an essentially indefensible position. Censorship is not stopping people from uh, speaking out about the things that they want to speak out about when it is intentionally uh, violent. In other words, there is no matter of censorship here. This is simply about trying to stop people from mounting violent ideas and violent plans through very clear, very plain language that we see on these platforms all of the time. And so I think for this to happen uh, raises the question of why hasn't surveillance been doing this for the last 20 years? (laughs) What has surveillance really been looking at if it is only catching up with these things in 2021? What is going to make this particularly challenging for the government? They have unfortunately mentioned that end-to-end encryption is a problem. And this is a discourse that we've seen in the United Kingdom. Encryption does not promote terrorism. Encryption protects conversations. I think it's a slippery slope to be heading down into this rabbit hole of what it means to uh, encrypt conversations between people that should not be problematized, especially from a privacy perspective uh, in terms of, of trying to locate a space or a source or a connection or a channel or what have you, Mike. Um, that may or may not be filled with some sort of uh, bigoted or racist uh, content tantamount to mounting another insurrection. But there are certainly challenges, but I I really do feel strongly here that surveillance, if it's going to work, needs to start looking at the right things. And I think it's as simple as the plain language of racism and bigotry online. And it, it, that could be a jumping off point, or is that something that you believe if, if that's identified and if that's discussed and, and if the origins of that are shared, what do you think? Could, could we have a big difference on our hand? I would, I would like to think so, Mike, because if we don't have a big difference on our hand, then we have just essentially proved that 20 years of developing mass global surveillance factually does not work. Wow. Dr. Cook, thank you for having this discussion with us today. All the best. You too. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great day. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.